Hotel history is created for adult audiences. Content may not be suitable for all listeners. Discretion is advised. You're listening to Hotel History. We take you with us through the sordid history and scandals of some of the world's most famous and infamous hotels. I'm Dieta. And I'm Yael. Let's get started. We're continuing our dive into the history, luxury, and allure of one of London's most iconic landmarks, the Savoy Hotel. Where did we leave off last time? So we left off... uh, Dioli has passed on the man who started the Savoy and his son, Rupert, is now taking over. Yes. So we're in about 1903, very beginning of the 20th century. So the reason that his younger son, Rupert, actually takes over is because, well, number one, their older son, Lucas, was not really ever interested in the family business he became a lawyer but Rupert actually inherits everything because Lucas contracts tuberculosis whenever he's on a business trip in 1899 and his health steadily declines until he dies in 1907 yeah I feel like a lot of people died very easily back then (laughs) (laughs) tuberculosis was yeah, a big it's, one. It's still very deadly, you know? Yeah, yeah. If you, I mean, you I, if you catch it now, I think you can have antibiotics and stuff that, that, can, mm. that can cure it. That's true. But, yeah, but back then, yeah, it was a death sentence. Okay, his brother dies, but also someone else in his family. Oh, his uncle, who would have, I guess, possibly inherited some stuff from their father, uh, is he doesn't die, but he is committed because oh, he keeps right. having mental breakdowns. So he doesn't die until I think like 1926, but yeah. he is basically off the table as far as any business goes. Right. So basically, Rupert is the only one yeah. that can take over. And he actually has a really good reputation as a boss in the Savoy, I believe. He's mm-hmm. considered very kind, very fair, very professional. Very generous. Very generous. Yeah, but like quiet about it. Mm-hmm. If you asked for money, he would just give it to you. doesn't matter. Yeah. If you um, complimented anything he had, he would just give it to you. <laughs> yeah, which is kind of interesting that someone like that existed. But it didn't sound like Dioli was a bad guy, so I'm not surprised that maybe yeah. he raised a good person. For sure. And he has to now take over and he's changing it up so he's rebuilding things he's really putting in a lot of work um, and a lot of cash a lot of ca- well he has a lot to give away <laughs> but it's it's interesting um i feel like that happens new owners come to a hotel and they're just like okay let's do this like you ha- I, I think i've mentioned this before in previous episodes you need to have an enthusiasm for any of this to work. Like if you're yeah. just coming in to do business, not going to work. It's, it's going to fall apart things. Cause you're doing things too unemotional and everything about hotels, at least the ones that have been around for a hundred years is doesn't work that way. It's not based off that. So Rupert 
takes over. He's redoing the place. And some of the things he builds and fixes up is the entrance and the foyer and the modern Savoy Grill and the Savoy Court. Yeah, he actually built the Savoy Court. That didn't exist before. So uh, Rupert like has to like add a couple of blocks onto the strand to be able to build what he wants. And the Savoy Court is uh, his permanent apartments that he builds for all of these people who were staying at the hotel long term. He started to notice that there was this demand and they needed more rooms available because they were becoming more popular. So this way, people who wanted to stay long term could live at the court. And then they that freed up rooms for people trying to book the hotel. That could be. Do they still have that? Kept. Yeah. So. so a famous actress of the time, she's actually considered the first celebrity, is Sarah Bernhardt. And she moves in. And Sir Thomas Dewar lived there for 40 years. Who's Sir Thomas Dewar? He was the <laughs> heir to the Dewar whiskey. Ah, okay. Business. Yeah. I don't know what that is. but <laughs> it's, uh, I, it's a very popular whiskey. Uh, I'm not a super big fan of it, but I am a fan of lots of other whiskeys. If anybody wants to send us something we can to sponsor. sample. If you want to sponsor us, sponsor. we'll take a shot every time we have to say a year. And I'll drink doers yeah. if you guys want to send do us that. some. Why aren't we taking... We need to make a game, a drinking game out of some of our episodes. Yeah. Uh, every time... Someone dies of a disease that no longer <laughs> exists. <laughs> Take a shot. Um, okay. And so what else was going on? Um, so when Rupert added this new entrance that is actually the current entrance that it still has to this day, this became the only place in Britain where cars legally drive on the right-hand side. And that was so chauffeurs could drop their guests off directly at uh, the theater or the hotel underneath the canopy so that, I mean, I guess it's always raining in London so oh, that so the weather wouldn't bother that's them. smart though. That's, it's the little things. It's the little things that count. That honestly, if I was very wealthy, that would be, um, I'd be like, yes. Yeah, okay. absolutely. <laughs> um, yeah. So, um, another big, uh, improvement he made was to change the hotel's courtyard that was on the river into the ballroom it was named the Lancaster ballroom they get its own private entrance and before it's built they like have one last hurrah in the courtyard in 1905 George A. Kessler who was from New York he imported champagne has a birthday dinner there and he wants it themed like Venice, like oh, gondoliers. This is the Venice party? Yeah, this is oh. the Venice party. They flood the courtyard four feet deep to make it look like the Grand Canal in Venice. And dinner is served to everybody on this gilded, like silk laden gondola in the middle. And I think they have like a build a bridge to be able to, you know, walk things up to the gondola. And this swans that they have swimming in this oh canal God, yeah. are all alive when the evening begins <laughs> oh no but they use chemicals to tint the water blue and whatever they used was not they slowly had to fish out those yeah swans. they had to fish out those swans i want to know where if i know pictures were very rare back then 
but either an illustration or a drawing of this part. I, in my head, I'm imagining something very different, except the swans. <laughs> um, I want to see it because that sounds so insane. Like imagine planning a party and being like, I want a river in my party. And then I want live animals. Like that's, that's like ri- really rich people things. Yeah. Like, can you please flood your courtyard to turn it into Venice for me, please? And thank you. Yeah. I mean, now it's, you can just go to the Venetian <laughs> in Vegas, <laughs> but that's like a, that makes sense. And thank God there's no uh, little swans in there. Oh my God. I can't like that. That killed me. They had to scoop them out. What was it? What was that chemical? I don't know. Radium? Like <laughs> <laughs> These poor birds just trying to live their best lives. And it's just, it's sad. This time of the early 1900s is the time where you hear things and you're like, wow, like, I can't believe that that happened. Just all of history is a big WTF. Yeah. Yeah, but it's not this th- stories like this won't make the news. Like it's not yeah. that interesting or important. <laughs> but <laughs> just more <laughs> shit rich people do. Yeah, sounds like a fun party though. I bet it was a great party. Besides the dead swans. Oh, oh, but also a famous tenure Enrico Caruso saying as a hundred white doves were released. So we know not only the swans died. <laughs> But the doves died. <laughs> I don't think. I think the doves made it because they released they, oh, them they and they keep, flew away. But I think the water must have, like, if they're drinking from the water, you know. Hopefully, they saw the dead bodies and took it as a warning. Oh yeah, you hope it was a cautionary smart. tale for the doves. There was also a baby elephant that was borrowed from the zoo, um, and was pulled out of a five foot birthday. No, no, cake? it pulled a five oh, foot birthday. Oh my god! Cake. I'm like, how? What are we doing to these animals? It pulled a five-foot birthday birthday cake up to the bridge to the gondola while Caruso sang "Oh, oh so- sole mio." Oh, you sole know that mio. famous "Oh sole mio." Yes. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So imagine a baby elephant. Wait a second. Just <laughs> carting a five-foot tall, a person tall birthday. Well, and there cake. wasn't a person in there. A girl just no, pop out. No, that it kinda, was just that's all birthday. Not that cake. exciting then. And then they just. <laughs> They're just pulling it up a bridge in a courtyard that has been flooded. What is the fascination with zoo animals and hotels? Especially back then. I don't know. The plaza the plaza had had the elephants. Yeah. And then they also, they had a whole menagerie. They were like, oh, I just got some crocodiles (laughs) in my bathroom. Oh my God. Thank God they put an end to that. Yeah. Uh, But please stick to your tiny dogs. No more, no more exotic animals. Moving in the same vein of how we have noticed that hotels always seem to be on the forefront of feminism, whether they wanted to or meant to, there was uh, some sympathy, at least, for women's rights in the UK because Rupert allowed both the Savoy Theatre and Hotel to host suffrage events at this time. They, they had a rally at the theater in 1906. They had some dinners at the hotel. That's, I, I think it was, they were ahead of us, right? Like a yes. little bit ahead of us. Yeah. Um, but yeah, they, it seems that hotels are really, they're the grounds for a lot of change. And I've mentioned this in previous episodes, but when it comes to feminism, racism, like 
you know, even a safe haven with from war, they they're like really open. Mm -hmm. They're just they're not asking too many questions. And I don't think I know there is a financial reason for it, but I also believe there's this kind of open mindedness. They're not very ideological. You know, they're kind of they're ahead. You have to think ahead if you want a successful hotel. And Dioily definitely did. And I think he passed it on to his son. But he was like ascending rooms, electricity, running water, women allowed to eat in the same room as mm-hmm. men. And I, I know this is weird to say, but I almost feel like it's a, the great equalizer because even the people that work there have to deal with the people, the guests and the guests are from a different, you know, they're a different class and all that stuff. And that interaction, mm-hmm. like they have to, you're meeting two people from two different backgrounds and it helps bridge views and i think also um just i forgot my train of thought but there there's something there it's all it's like yeah bridging different classes different cultures because international guests are a whole other thing that that you're learning to deal with and it's and i wonder if we didn't have hotels would i think we wouldn't be as far as we are in progress because the hotels are a space for people to come together and to discuss things. Mm-hmm. So, you know, whether it's civil rights and all that, like, I mean, we're going to get to it, but major political uh, people come in and they have important conversations. They're making deals. They're discussing things that are happening around the world. And that influences decisions that affect everyone's life. Yeah. And where are you going to do that? Because there's also this sense of being very, uh, like, confidentiality and, like, hush, hush, we don't sell our secrets. You right. come to the hotel, you do what you want, and we'll make sure. Yeah, all, discretion, discretion is always yeah. key. So in 1907, it's time for Rupert to get married. He is in his early 30s, and he marries 18-year-old lady Dorothy Gaythorne Hardy, who was the daughter of the third Earl of Cranbrook. And they end up having two children, Bridget, born in 1908, and Michael, born in 1911. So some other interesting things about the hotel, they have the American Bar. Do we know why they called it the American Bar? Yeah, it because they served American-style cocktails, and a lot of Americans would frequent it because of that. So they it just kind of got that. And I think it was probably originally just the bar and it just kept getting called the American bar. Right. It, it, American culture had a big influence on this hotel because the oily liked yes. American culture a lot. One of the head bartenders was a woman named Ruth Burgess, one of the first and only, I think at the time, head bartenders uh, during the early 20th century at the bar at the same time there was another female bartender ada coleman um and they were kind of in competition with each other they were never working together because um they hated each other yeah well if if somebody got put into your position over you like ada was with ruth you'd probably not love them too much so yeah ada gets promoted into Ruth's head bartender position. So I guess Ruth kind of gets demoted. So they never worked the same shift at the entire time they worked together. And Ada also wouldn't share any of her Mm -hmm. cocktail recipes with Ruth, which 
kind of adds insult to injury. Why are women competing with each other like that? Even from the beginning of Seriously, time. You, you are in an all-male environment. Work together. Yeah. But that, I've seen this happen before. Yeah. They're like, they're very uh, territorial and yeah. insecure. She, but um, Ada, she invented a, a very famous cocktail called the Hanky Panky. Mm-hmm. Was it good? Is this the cocktail that was good or not good? Yeah, this one is like a take on a Negroni, but she added another element that I had never heard of before, so I can't remember what it was. Oh, right. Well, my opinion, I think Negronis are disgusting. (laughs) (laughs) I bartend, so I have made Negronis. They're fun to make, but I don't don't get... Not a big fan. No, not a big fan. I like them all right. Yeah. Um, but does anyone order hanky pinkies? No, not that I am. A, no, it's not that I've ever old, yeah. seen. Yeah. It's I'm sure that they've been drink. added. Like when the craft cocktail revival happened, I imagine it made its way back onto some, yeah. some menus, but I don't think anybody just orders it because they just happen to know what it is. I think they have to see it on the menu. Yeah. That makes sense. It's not trendy. It's not a trendy drink. But also a little bit about Ruth or Ada. I'm not sure which one, but there was a lot of uproar about having a female barmaid at the time. That was about Ada. And it was because uh, most likely it was because of all of the Americans coming because in England, it was no big deal to have a female bartender. It happened all the time. But in America, it wasn't. So ah. all of the Americans coming to the bar were uncomfortable having female bartenders. I don't know if you can tell, but I'm rolling my eyes. <laughs> <laughs> what? Yeah. Oh, my God. Yeah. Okay. Well, they need to get over it. And I think they did. She, they probably like, I feel uncomfortable. And she's like, well, can I make you a hanky panky? And they're like, well, okay. <laughs> if you insist. Uh, yeah. Um, but female customers were not allowed in the bar. Right. Yeah. So, so this, the barmaids were just, oh my God. They really were make that make in sense. this all male environment where they were allowed to, yeah, women could work in the bar. They could serve, make drinks, but they were not allowed to be patrons in a bar. And I, I can't remember what year that finally changed, but it was considerably on down the line. Oh my God. So that brings us to World War I. During this time, Rupert volunteers for the Royal Navy, and he gets chosen as a king's messenger, which is like a really fancy word for spy. Uh, He was uh, tasked to move diplomatic documents across occupied Europe, and they chose him because he traveled for his job constantly so they thought he wouldn't raise any suspicion because it makes sense that he's a hotelier a theater guy he has these touring companies of course he's going to be traveling all the time so he would do his regular work for the navy and then from time to time also do a little bit of spying spying (laughs) spy delivery anyway message delivery maybe not actual spying but but during this time business at the hotel was was pretty good Uh, Because many aristocrats were forced to sell their London mansions due to expensive upkeep. And it was actually cheaper to stay at the Savoy 
for the season before going back to their country homes. Uh, why was it more expensive for, I'm curious to know why that was. Was there like a specific reason it was more expensive? Oh yeah. Because if you have a, a house in London, then you also have to have staff. And if you're at the Savoy, no staff. Oh, okay. Staff is baked into the price. Yeah. Cause exactly. Cause if you're an aristocrat, obviously you're going to be bringing your maids and your cooks and your butler and your valet and. Right. But. All of a sudden, that ma- I guess the war put a uh, stress yeah. on them. Oh, okay, that's what it was. Oh, well, what a deal! Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, in 1917, restaurants had to have meat-free menus one day a week. They would serve polenta and rice cake instead of bread. Okay, first of all, that's so trendy right now. <laughs> They're so like vegan friendly. Yes, and animal rights friendly. Uh, I'm assuming that was for the rations of yeah, the war. That was rations. Also, what they served polenta and rice cakes, those are delicious. Like, yeah, I think gluten free <laughs> on the menu. Yeah, it said that, you know, you could choose either rice or polenta, and both of which are sufficient substitutes for bread. They, they were said. like, listen, we can't give you one car, but we can give you a yeah. different car. Listen, you fussy little bitches. Yeah. This is fine. Yeah. <laughs> Vegan friendly and gluten free friendly. <laughs> they would do so well here in LA. Exactly. After the war is over, we get a taste of our first scandal since the whole Oscar Wilde debacle. So in 1918, they throw a victory ball. And this was described as a teetotal victory ball, which tells me there was not supposed to be any alcohol or anything at it uh, to celebrate the end of the war. And a really famous actress, Billy Carlton, who was 22, she lived at the Savoy Court, and she attended this ball, and the next day dies of a cocaine overdose. (gasps) Yes, so her maid realized that she had stopped breathing the next afternoon, And so she calls the hotel doctor and they inject her with brandy and strychnine to try to wake her up. Yeah, I guess that was their version of whatever you shoot into somebody to try to wake them up. Brandy? Brandy and strychnine. Oh, my God. Strychnine is poison, huh? Uh, Yeah. Yeah, it is. Then why would that wake them up? I don't know. I don't know. I'm not not a... (laughs) So this this caused a anti-drug campaign and inspired three plays with drug themes within a year running in the West End. Huh. Yeah, it was a big deal. And then in 1920, so two years later, Britain passes the Dangerous Drugs Act, uh, banning cocaine possession without a prescription. Oh, well. Yeah. <laughs> Thank God. You just make sure your doctor's okay with exactly. it. Exactly. Then you're, you're still good. Ooh. Yeah, the the person that they, I guess they finally tracked down who she got the cocaine from and then who they got the cocaine from and then who they got the cocaine from, that original dealer was charged with manslaughter. Oh, my God. Wow. They How did they find that out? I guess enough people got didn't want to be arrested that they told. Narcs. Narcs. Okay. Yeah. Snitches.
some more famous people we're going to talk about is Fred and Adele Astaire. They performed their dance and they took a picture dancing on the roof. So they were doing a whole thing on the roof. So they would perform there and then for publicity, they took photos of them dancing on the rooftop. And there's no guardrail up there in the photo. So they're just like dancing on the, by the edge of the roof with nothing to protect them if they lose their balance. Wow. The, you know, the world was a different place a hundred years ago. <laughs> it really was. But have you ever watched Fred Astaire dance? Like any of like Fred mm-hmm. Astaire and Ginger Rogers? Yeah. It's amazing. Oh yeah. I, I'm blown away. Like, I think it's so underrated. Yeah. He was insanely good. So good. I used to be obsessed with him and Gene Kelly, mm-hmm. you know, from Singing in the Rain. Mm-hmm. Fred Astaire was in Singing in the Rain also, right? I think so. I think so. But either way, I knew both of them separately. And I remember watching and reading like their biographies. And I'm like, these men are straight. <laughs> <laughs> Apparently, they were very straight. Gene Kelly was like a ladies man. Mm-hmm. And it's so interesting that he had said like that reputation and then it turned out like Cary Grant who's supposed to be this charming whatever was really the gay one in real life but yeah the dancing was uh really amazing I I wish they brought that back yeah I I know that I guess tap dancing kind of lost its edge but some of the moves that they could do were really amazing and Fred Astaire was old when yeah. he can still do them. Yeah. Did you ever watch Funny Face? Oh, I love that one. I love that movie. It is strange, though. It is. Fred Astaire is like 50 years old and Audrey Hepburn is 20. Yeah. And they're like about to get married and fall in love. And I'm like, um. And also Fred Astaire is not a good looking man. No, he's such he's kind of a strange looking man. But here's the thing. He's so charming. Mm-hmm. That when I'm watching the movie, I'm like, you're really old and you're not good looking, but you're so charming that yeah. I get it. He has the charisma. You he know? has the he charisma. Yeah. It was, it was a good movie. Anyone who hasn't seen it should go watch it. Yeah. Um, yeah. And we actually mentioned it in our Plaza episode because uh, Kay Thompson plays the oh yeah yeah she the ooh, editor of the magazine in that. Wow. Full circle with that one. <laughs> In the 20s, actually, the Savoy was so full of Americans, it was nicknamed the 49th state. Oh, my God. Really? Yeah. And uh, well, that was Rup- before they had 50 states. Yeah. Yes, because this was 20s. So uh, Rupert installed a ticker tape machine just for visiting Wall Street tycoons. And then, of course, the American bar becomes even more popular with Americans because prohibition is raging back in the States and they can't get a decent drink. Oh, my God. Imagine traveling just to get a drink. I would. Imagine traveling at the time. They didn't have airplanes. Yeah, it was it was boats. Oh, my God. But a lot of them did. So many people, so many Americans left that, that could because also they were coming to live in Paris and Rome because those places were cheap. Like at the time they were dirt cheap. It was more expensive to live in America than in Paris, if you can imagine. Yeah, that, that kind of does make sense because I feel like they were not as developed as America. And they yeah. hadn't. Yeah. And they hadn't become the centers that they are now of where. Uh, well, Paris kind of 
but paris was bohemian yeah it was still like artsy and stuff i mean it was the fashion capital of the world but it was still pretty artsy yeah it hadn't become the rom-com capital of the world yet yeah so uh i feel like you should talk about the dolly sisters okay so the dolly sisters were this vaudeville act that acted in movies and on broadway here in america and they would stay at the Savoy anytime they went to London uh, on tour. So on one particular trip, they seduced a man named Harry Selfridge, who was the founder of an upscale chain of department stores in the UK, Selfridges. And they took $4 million, or they lost $4 million gambling while they were there. And this man... I guess he had a whole lot more than $4 million because he still asked one of the sisters to marry him and offered her $10 million to do so, which also like low self-esteem guy. Like she, she might've married you without the promise of any money. Would she? <laughs> Who knows? But she never got the chance because she decides to kind of have this last hurrah while she's deciding whether or not to marry him. And she goes to the Riviera with a pilot kind of has a little affair. And then on the way back, they get into a car accident and she is permanently disfigured. Selfridge donates money for her surgeries that, you know, to try to fix what happened, but she's never the same again. And they don't end up getting married. And she's so depressed over what happened that eight years later, she committed suicide. And and she and her sister, they were twin sisters, identical twin sisters. So if you look up photos of the Dolly sisters, there's a ton of publicity photos of them in matching outfits all the time. It's really cute, actually. Yeah, they looked so charismatic. Like, I can see how they would have really popped on stage. Yeah, they had an interesting life. Yeah, well, I'll find of, out more about yeah. them. I bet a lot more interesting stuff. Sarah Bernhardt and them. Yeah. And I feel like uh, Winston Churchill's mom. Yeah. <laughs> what was her name? Jenny? Jenny Jerome. Yeah, Jenny Jerome. Jenny Jerome. What? That is such a funny name. <laughs> Jenny Jerome becomes Jenny Churchill <laughs> and then gives birth to the most like... <laughs> Becomes Mrs. Randolph Churchill. Yeah, tons of studio executives and actors from Hollywood would come and stay, and they had a lot of parties at the hotel. But the British actors, when they went to Los Angeles, were really disappointed because they realized the parties and socializing wasn't as good as in yeah. London, um, specifically at the Savoy. But I'm really surprised about that. I think it's because of prohibition. I think they were probably oh, like, but well, still, no, we, they party. They party the though because everybody had they everybody partied. had hooch. Yeah. So I don't know, but maybe but they were. Also, there wasn't like because um, I remember one actress in particular was complaining that after she had her opening night in Los Angeles, nobody like brought her flowers. Nobody <gasps> took her out to dinner. Oh she she was like. I would never imagine an opening night at the Savoy without without everyone going out to a big dinner and being feted. And so, um, well, I just want to say I'm not surprised <laughs> I, this, this, you know, I don't want to go on a rant or anything, but I feel like that makes sense. That makes sense. There isn't 
that camaraderie mm-hmm. here. And I think when I, we were watching a, a small a documentary show about the Savoy, you had the sense that that's ex- their vibe was like, you take care of the people that come in. Yeah. And um, almost like they're surrogate friends. Yeah. And I think that they don't have that here. What yeah. hotel has that here? Because their attitude is don't talk to them. Yeah. I think that's the difference. Don't talk to them. Leave them alone. But then they're lonely. Mm-hmm. And who that's yeah, it's a culture difference. Um, that's that's really interesting to hear. So London knows how to party. Yeah. Um, and I guess Americans like to party when they're in London. So <laughs> to get more American business, Rupert actually sent over a representative to talk to travel agents in the US because he thought that would be a better way to get more bookings than through advertising. He didn't want to pay for advertising if he could just go straight to the travel agents. And it seemed to work. So he set up an office at the Waldorf Astoria in New York. And then he invited other major hotels to join together so that they could all basically have more clout and get more bookings that way. And at the time, they called it the Luxury Hotels of Europe and Egypt. And it still exists, but today it's known as the Leading Hotels of the World Group. Oh, I had no idea. Yeah, I'd never heard of it before, but you can go to their website and you can search. Right, They have like 400 members, so you can search through all of the different hotels that are members and see you know, who's part of this major group. I actually couldn't find the Savoy on their website. So as of 2011, the Savoy was still a member, but I don't know if they are currently because I couldn't find them. But I may not have searched. They didn't want to pay the dues. (laughs) They were like, look, we started this. We don't need you. As usual, hotels always attract some good authors. And novelist F. Scott Fitzgerald he set a short story at the Savoy Grill after he spent the 4th of July there. That is something else that actually I really noticed. They keep mentioning 4th of July celebrations at the Savoy. And that's so interesting that I guess because they did rely on Americans so much that they actually went out of their way to have specific celebrations it's not the americans making these celebrations it's the hotel putting them on yeah and to have a fourth of july celebration in a british hotel that irony what (laughs) (laughs) i like that though yeah it's 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 really nice yeah i mean are they gonna still be hung up about it Uh, probably not at that point yeah surely not that yeah but that is cute yeah and well that makes sense that fitzgerald was there then yeah uh, I wonder who else would have been there. Probably a lot of actresses, American actresses. Yeah. So PJ Woodhouse, he used the grill in his book. And Arnold Bennett set a novel among the staff of the hotel and dedicated it to the manager. And that must have been a really interesting book, too. Another major scandal for the Savoy happens in July of 1923. A Parisian courtesan by the name of Marguerite Fami was staying at the Savoy on her honeymoon with her husband, Prince Ali Kamel Fami, who was 10 years younger than her. He was 
I've seen some things call him a prince, some things just call him a noble, but he was from Egypt, from a very wealthy family. So I love that the book says that he met her through her work, but... If she's a courtesan. Yeah, that's a really nice way. So he was her client? Of saying, yeah, that oh. they met because he paid for her services, I'm guessing. Oh, my God. Anyway, uh, they had started their extended honeymoon trip in Egypt, where he coerced her into posing for photographs in a pharaoh's sarcophagus and kept her a virtual prisoner on his yacht, she later claimed, after what we're about to tell you about goes down. Oh, God. <laughs> Probably not true. So they're in London planning to stay for a month for their honeymoon. They were already known for like being tempestuous. Like they fought a lot publicly. Yeah. It would be normal to hear noise coming from their yeah. room. Yeah. On July 9th, they went out for a drive and then came back for lunch at the Savoy, followed by shopping at Selfridges. And then they intended to go to the theater, changed into their full evening dress. He in, you know, tails and tie. She's in a beaded white satin cocktail dress designed for her by Coco Chanel. Of course. And they go see the operetta, The Merry Widow. (laughs) Oh, I'm now thinking she was just inspired. (laughs) (laughs) Foreshadow. She insists that she's going to return to their house in Paris alone the next day. Unable to make her stay, Ali sends telegrams to her favorite shops to preempt a shopping spree. They say nothing to be delivered to my wife on my account during my absence. Ooh. He already he cut her off so fast. Yeah. They were sent to Louis Vuitton, Cartier, and Van Cleef and Arpels. I don't know that last one. You don't know Van Cleef and Arpels? Mm-mm. Oh, it's a famous jewelry. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah, that was probably a good one to send it to. So once they get back to the Savoy after going to see the play, they fight again. Marguerite brandishes a wine bottle during their late supper in the restaurant, threatening to smash it over his head. And then in bad humor, the book says, I love that in bad humor. That's such an understated way (laughs) of talking about it. They go to their, they go to the ballroom. Marguerite stays until, you know, late at night. And then she leaves to, uh, to go to bed and Ali stays behind. He comes in about an hour later. She's still in her dress writing letters and they have another fight. Ali comes rushing out into the corridor and runs into the night porter. And he says, look at my face and points to marks on his cheek where Marguerite had hit him. He wanted to speak to the night manager. So the porter told the elevator attendant to send a message while he is trying to attend to some some other guests. And then apparently after walking a few paces down the hallway with the guest's luggage, the porter hears three shots fire. He runs back to see that Marguerite has thrown her Browning semi-automatic 
down on the carpet, which I believe she was known to uh, sleep with that under her pillow, which or she claimed that she slept with it under her pillow every night because of the state of her marriage. (laughs) That's a bad sign. (laughs) Yeah. Next to the pistol, Ali was slumped on the floor against the wall and it was a, a, a gruesome yeah gruesome sight the porter holds on to marguerite he's not going to let her get away while uh calling for the doctor and the ambulance to come okay so big murder big scandal of course this woman is gonna have to go to trial because she was almost basically witnessed committing murder this porter was so close whenever she goes to trial her Lawyers basically try to paint Ali as this, like, degenerate, this sexual deviant who almost, like, forced her into marriage. And then once they were married, you know, forced her to do all of these sexual deviant acts and that he was also bisexual. So he was doing what they would consider deviant acts. And they basically use the xenophobia that existed at this time against anyone who was not traditionally white and British to paint him as this, you know, monster from the East. Her lawyer argued that um, the grave mistake that she made in her life was a woman of the West married to an Oriental. Yeah. So, yeah, they really... Who was guilty? I mean, she... Hitting and killing your husband is pretty bad. It's pretty bad. It's pretty bad. I mean, I, who knows what went down, but this <laughs> it it sounds like she for sure murdered him. Yeah, she <laughs> she definitely murdered him. But she got away with it. She was acquitted. Yeah, they they acquitted this bitch. Uh I wonder if she murdered anyone else. So it turns out she had a little help. So not only did she play this damsel in distress that really went over well with the public, but also in her work as a courtesan, one of her clients was the Prince of Wales. Ah. And he really thought she did a good job. <laughs> he basically sent her love letters like an idiot. And she kept them in case they ever came in handy. Yeah. So all of a sudden the the royals are like oh shit <laughs> and so they uh, go to her and ask for the letters back but she doesn't give all the letters back she keeps one in case she yeah, needs she's it again a in smart the future woman. yeah <laughs> the royal family actually put pressure on the judge to keep all of her past relationships out of the trial that way the prince of wales wouldn't get caught up in all of it and that also helped her situation because then the the public and the jury aren't going to hear all of the details of her being a courtesan which obviously is not going to make her look like the most moral person at that time damn the royals the prime minister they have a lot of pull yeah they have a lot of pull and then she goes on living in paris at the ritz right For the rest of her old age? I believe so. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good life. Rupert actually feared that everything going on with the case was going to put off his respectable guests. 
but actually it made the Savoy more popular than ever because, I mean, that's, people love lurid yeah. things, so he should not have worried. Back at the American bar, Harry Craddock becomes the head bartender in 1926, and nobody's really sure if he actually conspired to have Ada Coleman like pushed out and retire, or if they were friends and she kind of trained him up and and well as let long him as he's not a woman, but so she's okay <laughs> with that. But yeah, he was already uh, a well-known bartender in the States before he came over and took the position there. So he is most famous for compiling and writing the Savoy Cocktail Book, which is published in 1930 and has never been out of print. And it was a major foundation of the rise of the craft cocktail several years ago. It it was definitely a, a playbook for that because it lists, I think, like 750 cocktails. Whoa. Yeah, it's it's intense. And he, like, writes cute little intros to each one of the drinks. And one of them, in the intro to the bunny hug, which is a mix of whiskey, gin, and absinthe, he comments, this cocktail should immediately be poured down the sink before it is too late. <laughs> Why even make it then? <laughs> also, those are my least three least favorite <laughs> kind of alcohols. So. I love whiskey. I like gin. Yeah, whiskey's not I don't so need bad. them mixed together. Definitely not no. with absinthe. There's too many Blah. competing flavors. Oh that's my god! So that's for someone who just wants to kill themselves. Yeah, honestly. just drink a bottle yeah. of whiskey like a normal person. But uh, one reason they <laughs> think that maybe Craddock kind of took Ada's job is because the only cocktail list in there that he attributes to her is the hanky panky none of the other ones and she was um like she was a prodigy of drink mixing and making up cocktails so in all of those years that she worked there there's no way that the only cocktail she invented was the hanky panky so he either accredited some of her work to him or he just left out all of the rest of her work we all know the answer yeah. to this one. Um, <laughs> oh, so Rupert had the Savoy bands. So there were actual s- bands dedicated to playing at the Savoy. One of the bands was called the Orpheans, and the other band was called the Savoy Havana Band. Mm-hmm. Or were they the same band? Two separate two different, bands. Two, two yeah. separate bands. And they would be broadcast over the BBC so that listeners could l- live vicariously through the broadcast. So this is like the first time ever yeah. this happened. Like this, this is, is a big when deal. this is radio just came out. Yeah, and so once again, you know, Rupert, very similar to his father, doing seeing these these trends and 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 grabbing onto them and going, oh, I can use that. Yeah, very tech advanced. Mm-hmm. Um, in 1926, they were able to wire wirelessly broadcast overseas to the East Coast, um, and so they would play. Those uh, during, what was it? What were they? Were they were playing? The band was playing in the, like in the ballroom. In the ballroom yeah, in the Lancaster. Ballroom. And they would broadcast it, uh, especially during World War Two. Was it? 
Yeah, we'll get there later. Oh, that that's was later. Different. Yeah. But just so you know, that's a teaser. It's coming. Yeah, it's coming. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so I mean, by the late 20s, they're not just broadcasting to England. They've made it to be able to broadcast all the way to at least the East Coast of America. And so that was a big deal, too, because wireless broadcasting was brand new. And then in late 1926, Rupert's daughter, Bridget, marries the Earl of Cranbrook. Yeah, you might recognize that name because her mother married the was the daughter of the third Earl of Cranbrook. And now she's marrying the fourth Earl of Cranbrook. It was her first cousin. Her cousin. <laughs> Yucky. That was a forced marriage. That was not. She wasn't like, ooh, my cousin's cute. No, yeah. Her, <laughs> her, her mom set it up and basically forced her to do it. And she did not want to. Why was that so popular in England? <sighs> to keep the money in the family. Oh, like they were that that side of the family was struggling financially. And the Dioilis had more than enough. So she oh was like, God. here you go. Just give the money. Don't oh damage. Oh, my God. Yeah, you don't, don't ruin the to- gene pool. <laughs> so poor. But poor Bridget does does manage to get a divorce later on so no worries there she (laughs) they fixed it but in britain it was really hard at the time of course to get a divorce except on specific grounds and because she she said later that she wished she had never consummated the marriage or she could have just had it annulled (gasps) but because they did consummate the marriage they had to basically set up an adultery uh, charge so they arranged for a photographer to take pictures of the earl in bed with someone else and then they used that as grounds oh my god yeah but they had to do it twice because the first time they tried rupert found out what they were doing and f- said that he had like a moral obligation to tell the judge what was going down Wow. But that does show, uh, you know, his integrity. And yeah, but then the the Earl's mom came over to Rupert's house and basically chewed his ass out and was like, why would you do that? They they are miserable together. Let them let them end this. And then as she like left, she supposedly called out and you call yourself a Christian. I can. So he did not interfere the next time they tried. Oh my god! Uh, family drama, man. Family drama, <laughs> especially that, when you good. marry your first cousin, because then your mother-in-law is also your aunt. That's horrible. Oh. Which That's... I mean, I guess at least you've known her your whole you know life, the so you probably have oh a my better god, but relationship. Just... But, but... but... Now she has more control over you. Than... <laughs> just oh. that's that's weird. Yeah, but her 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 mother in law did seem like very fond of her and wasn't like this weird controlling person. Thank God, because that could have made things well, so much worse. She encouraged the divorce. Yeah, she yeah. was. She saw that 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 should have never happened. In 1929, Rupert leased out the theater for a play set in the First World War. This uh, that starred 21 year old Lawrence Olivier. He ended up meeting his future wife, Vivian Lee, at the Savoy Grill. Uh, She was at a nearby table while he had dinner with his first wife after the show. They both divorced their spouses in 1940 after they started an affair while they played lovers in a movie. So he met her while he was having dinner with his wife. Yeah. 
or yeah and then it took seven years for them to actually have an affair when they were in a movie together but they, oh. they first met or at least oh, okay. saw each other so that's not that scandalous I, yeah. I i thought it was like they already were having eyes for each other at dinner well they may have i mean yeah but okay that that i mean having an affair is scandalous true but that makes yeah. a lot more sense <laughs> that's normal i can't believe the savoy grill is that old like it's it's been around that long it's, it's seen a lot of things. The Depression comes to America. So in the 1930s, the hotel suffers because they have 50% fewer American bookings in 1932 than they did before the crash in 1929. But in typical de oily fashion, they didn't didn't want to cut spending. So Rupert basically tells his his shareholders and his board that they're not going to stop spending on the customers because that's where um you know you just you have to spend in times of trouble and that's all there is to it. Oh my god. But what where they did cut spending is they made wage reductions to their oh, employees. Of they did. Except for like the bottom rung of employees, they didn't cut their wages, but everybody else got a wage cut. Wait, and I'm like, why God, the bottom rung was already so yeah, bad? They, yeah, they already made so little money that they couldn't justify cutting their wages. Um, yeah. So, oh, and they also didn't release like dividends to shareholders. So at least that was a good call. But really, you're, you can't serve one less chicken in the ballroom and let your employees keep their money. Yeah, I don't understand. They had meatless Mondays. <laughs> All during so, the war. Yeah. So. You just have, you know, uh, no caviar Tuesdays. Exactly. I don't know. Jeez. Some of the decisions being made are really strange. So, yeah, as we as we continue, we've just finished with, you know, labor summer heading on into labor fall. I just really. Oh, here in L.A. Here in L.A. with with all of the hotel strikes going on here and in possibly in the coming up in Las Vegas. It just really struck oh me. My as God. like it, Vegas is going to have a strike. Pos- they voted. They approved it. We don't know yet, yet if they're going to do Good it or not, but Vegas. they approved it. Oh, man. Yeah, that's going to be bad for, for some of the major resorts on the strip. They're all owned by like MGM. So, yeah. Or, they, so if, if if anyone who works for them is going to strike. <laughs> <laughs> OK, good luck. They better figure that out. In 1932, Rupert's son, Michael, began his induction into the business. So Rupert starts having him come with him on trips and watching the opera and just trying to, you know, build him up the same way that he was with his father. But during one of his trips to Switzerland visiting friends, he needs to head to Monte Carlo to go back to work. And he was driving on a mountain pass when two motorcyclists tried to pass him in the wrong way. And he tried to avoid them, slams on the brakes, and one of the motorcycles crashes into the back of the car. This hurls Michael out of the car, and he dies on impact. And he was only 21 years old. So now Bridget, who never expected to really have to do anything with the companies, nobody you know expected her to become sort of 
the Boston waiting. And uh, I think the next year she becomes Rupert's assistant and starts uh, taking responsibility for the opera company's theater sets and for the interior design of all of the hotels that they owned. So she definitely had kind of a different induction into it than Michael was having because they she becomes Rupert's assistant, but then they immediately put her in charge of sets and interior design, which I can't help but feel they thought were feminine things. Of course, yeah. <laughs> Because he was traveling around watching the theater productions, learning how to, he like, I think was, became a server in a lot of restaurants because he had to learn how a restaurant ran and all of this kind of stuff. And they were like, you put pretty things in you pretty put spaces. put the flowers yeah. in the vase and make the hallway yeah. look Which nice. she did actually really love doing the interior design. So she was happy with that post, but still low yeah. key chauvinism. <laughs> Are we surprised? Never. Hey, as long as you're allowed to drink at the bar, the <laughs> girls were happy, you know? Imagine. Okay. Imagine living at a time where you can't even do that. Like, hey, let's go get a drink. Um, You know we're not allowed to. Yeah. <laughs> the Savoy went through a lot during World War II. Who didn't go through a lot during <laughs> World War II? And I have to say, the Savoy really went through a lot less <laughs> than <laughs> others. And it still went through a lot. Uh, it endured bomb damage, rationing, air raids, staff shortages, and a plunge, at least for a minute, in foreign visitors. And for the first time, its prime location in the heart of London was not a selling point because it was a major target during the Blitz. So the hotel was damaged three times during the 76-night Blitz in 1940. Bombs fell in the Strand and along the embankment. And the force of one of the blasts actually threw the band leader off the stage. No. So, and I guess just him. So that would be embarrassing. <laughs> You're the only person affected by a blast. Like being in a band while bombs are. Oh my going gosh! Around, like let it up. <laughs> the show let must it go it on. Up. You know. <laughs> wow, dedication to the customers. <laughs> yup. Uh, no, for sure because for the air raids Rupert made their bomb shelter as comfortable as possible with velvet curtains around the beds, of soundproof course. sections for the snorers, and a 24-hour maid service, you know, in case the the maids don't need to be protected, I guess, while bombs oh are being my dropped. God. Just the customers. Uh, there was a Red Cross unit in one corner, and in another corner, there was nothing because they needed it kept free for dancing. Oh, well, but we all know how important that is during a war. <laughs> <laughs> I thought you were going to say to bring in dead bodies to no. like, or care for injured for the wounded? soldiers. No. Yeah, no, for dancing. It's for the Lindy Hop. <laughs> it's for those who haven't had their legs blown off. <laughs> exactly. And then as removed as possible was a miniature royal suite that was occupied from time to time by the Duke and Duchess of Kent and Prince George and his wife, Princess Marina of Greece. 
Okay, so they they were fine. Yeah. Okay. They were fine. Uh, The staff had to be trained as wardens and provided with gas-proof clothing. And on the roof, they took turns keeping watch in an observation post with a telephone line, pictures of enemy aircraft, and tin hats. (laughs) I have so much thoughts on that (laughs) little paragraph. Okay, what is gas-proof clothes look like? Is that like a suit? Like it's, I guess like a hazmat suit. suit. A hazmat suit. I don't know. Um, because the way that sounds, just not like it. It sounds like it's their regular uniform, but it's been sprayed with something to yeah. make it gas proof. Um, and then also like I sitting on the roof, watching, observing, like making sure what's what are you gonna do? You're not in the military, like they're coming for us. Yeah, I guess <laughs> it's so that they could get them like in the basement before the air raid sirens even start going off. Oh, okay. Uh, maybe, maybe that's not but, that crazy. Yeah. Do you think any of them like had a gun, like a sniper situation just sitting there? <laughs> I, would. I would. That would be. But that's a lot of responsibility given to a random hotel worker. Oh my God. Can you uh, imagine? Uh, during the winter. I don't know when the blitz was. But in general, the no, war it was lasted. The summer. Yeah, it oh, was the summer. Well, at least they had that. <laughs> yeah, because the Blitz itself only lasted like two mo- two and a half months. Only. Yeah, <laughs> I know. <laughs> Compared to the five-year war, you know. <laughs> so, the, so, okay, yeah, I guess that was like the worst for London, the Blitz. Yeah, so, and just imagine it's your first day and they're like, cool, so you're going to go up to the roof, watch out for enemy aircraft, here's a tin hat. To keep oh yeah, you the tin safe. Hat. <laughs> what is the tin hat? The aliens can't read your what? mind. What? <laughs> the roof with bombs being dropped. What the tin it? hat's gonna keep you safe. What? Yeah. What the fuck is that? That. Oh, yeah. God. They did what they could. You know, there was rationing. The tin hat was the best they could do. Yeah, it was tin hat Tuesday. <laughs> <laughs> there was a vulnerable part of the hotel. It was a private dining room called Pinafore. It had huge windows. It was facing the river. Uh, Churchill liked to dine here because um, I don't know. It Wait, was no, gorgeous. Oh, Churchill yeah. liked to dine there with his society. He had a whole society. Yeah, he founded a like a private club, basically. Oh, that is so Churchill. What was, was it <laughs> yeah. called? The Churchill Club? No, it was called the Other Club. The Other Club. <laughs> He's way too witty for a stupid <laughs> name like that. He refused to move the club dinners to a safer part of the hotel. But when Churchill had an emergency meeting of his cabinet, he used the hotel basement. Um, well, that makes sense. Yeah. But because you okay, don't want to keep your friends safe. <laughs> well, he's he's pretty brave. Churchill yeah. seemed like I don't give a fuck kind of guy. Yeah. And I think, okay, those are dinners. But of course, he's going to take his cabinet into the basement. It's not only just for protection. It's it's also so no one can eavesdrop. Yeah. You're true. next to the window. Someone's listening into your important <laughs> Uh, meeting. But I think I might have taken a leave of absence from his club at the time. If he was like, the room with the biggest windows will be ours during the Blitz. Yeah, that was really stupid. Yeah, I would have I... been like, look, you want to be brave. Cool, cool, cool. I'm going to have my meatless Monday <laughs> loaf <laughs> down in the basement <laughs> where they've pin- got dancing. The pinafore, is that the, the dining room where they have the cat? Do we mention this cat? Yeah, no, we, we haven't mentioned- gotten to the cat yet. We haven't? No, we haven't. We forgot about Casper. I, I thought we mentioned last time. Did we? 
I can't remember. I don't remember mentioning Casper. No, because we were going to save it for this time because they oh. made him during the 20s and then we forgot. Oh, okay. So so this is an interesting fact about... I'm assuming it's the pinafore. I think it is. I can't remember. It was a dining area where people had meetings. And for some reason, there was like a time where uh, there was only 13 people at a meeting. And it was like considered bad luck. So someone sculpted a cat to be the 14th person or something. So now there's just like a black cat and there's also this huge bush sculpture of it out on the, out of their hotel. It's like very well known that they have this cat. What's his name? Casper. Casper. was his name with a K. Not Casper with with the friendly ghost. Casper the friendly cat. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know if that's the story though of how the cat came to be. The, yeah, no, I remember that's what you oh, read. Okay. Yeah. And yeah, so he was the 14th guest. They would literally set him in a chair at the table. So the bib. yeah, there wouldn't be any bad luck hanging around. So rations also were a problem for the hotel. Uh, kind of. They negotiated with the government over how much restaurants were allowed to offer. So they came up with a cost of five shillings, which is about 16 pounds, and a limit of three courses per person, which is different from, I think they were used to having like seven course meals. So three courses was quite... Wow, they really suffered. Yeah, they, so, <laughs> <laughs> so the head chef there would boast that he could make 50 dishes from potatoes alone. I mean, you could make a lot of dishes. You could make a lot. Potatoes. You could live off potatoes. Yeah. I would. The, uh, but I do. <laughs> <laughs> he could uh, also make ice cream without cream or milk. And supposedly customers said they couldn't tell the difference. Bullshit. They were just trying to keep him happy. Yeah. First yeah. of all, again, another trendy little food that, the Savoy's coming up with vegan ice cream mm-hmm. for the lactose intolerant. Yep. And then the hotel set up its own poultry farm to provide chicken and eggs, which they kept after the war. It kept going till 79. But they had to do that because they would they got in trouble for buying chickens at a price higher than the Ministry of Food had set. So they like got in trouble for doing a little getting chickens when they shouldn't have because they were willing to pay more oh that's stupid yeah who cares so they just got their own got a chicken but farm that's instead. so cute that they had their own chickens yeah why they should still have that yeah farm to farm table, to table. <laughs> come on guys again so Get food trendy <laughs> wow The BBC started this broadcast called London After Dark during the Blitz, and it was principally broadcast to other countries, especially America, because they wanted us to be able to understand what life in London was like during the Blitz. So they called them sound seeing tours, and they would switch to people in different parts of London to talk about what was going on right then as these bombings were happening. So you can actually hear one where they go to one of their correspondents live at the Savoy, and he's talking about how an air raid siren has just gone off, 
but people are still dancing, having a good time. And he's down in the kitchen watching the waiters rush around to fulfill food orders and talks about how they have like seven different types of meat available. And then he like realizes that that doesn't sound like they're suffering very much. And he's like, oh, but, you know, there are, people are only allowed to have one choice of meat oh, per, and their okay. meal. And <laughs> they interview the the chef, the famous chef who we were just talking about and he's so cute he is the like caricature of what americans think french people sound like he's like hello (laughs) and if if i can get this clip we're gonna try to play part of it because it's it's really interesting to hear like what they're going i haven't heard it yet i want to hear it yeah it's so it's so great so we're gonna try to play it london after dark At this time, the Columbia Broadcasting System brings you a special broadcast, life in a blackout in the capital of Great Britain. During the next half hour, you will be in various parts of London, a city which had three air raid alarms today, the nerve center of empire. There will be pickups from various points in London, accounts of work, yes, and of play in this great city of a nation at war. And so we turn you over to Columbia's staff in the British capital, and we take you now to London. The hub of the British Empire in wartime, Seen through Canadian eyes, through English eyes, and through American eyes. London at work and at play. From the unceasing grind of England's war effort to the relaxation of the crowds off duty. Come with us round London after dark in wartime. And now, after that unexpected air raid warning, we're going to take you to one of London's most ultra hotels where behind the blackout drapes, men and women are dancing in the main ballroom. We'll see what the effect is over there after the air raid warning. providing people with meals there. 
And of course, I'm sure you're all licking your lips because uh, this kitchen, as probably a lot of you will know, is provided over by no less a person than Francois Latry, who is certainly one of the most famous chefs in the world. As a matter of fact, his culinary ability has brought him honors from many parts of the world. He's a chevalier of the French Legion of Honor, and he also is a holder of the Order of the Cordon Rouge, which was established by Queen Mary. Well, tonight he's presiding over this white tile kitchen with its red floors, its battery of chefs, and flying black-coated waiters who are serving those people who are staying on right now, staying on and still dancing upstairs. It's wartime, and we have rationing. Nevertheless, I don't think you'd notice any difference at all. The menu tonight includes eight hors d'oeuvres, including caviar, eight different kinds of meat and game, and nevertheless, I don't want you to think that we're living luxuriously, sort of out of keeping with the war effort. Printed in red letters on the menu is this sentence. By agreement with the Ministry of Food, only one dish of meat or fish or poultry may be served at a meal. Still, that's not a great hardship, is it, not to be able to have both fish and meat? And even at that, the genius of Mr. Latry comes into effect because he's designed marvelous crustas and platte-travai, as he calls them, which have a fish base and which can be served before the main course. Things like, things like Crab Maryland and all that sort of thing. Well, here he is, Francois Latry, in his tall white cap. Francois Latry, one of the world's most famous chefs. I'm very happy to say hello to my friends across the Atlantic and to tell them we are well and food is plentiful. The war has not affected my cooking. Well, hasn't the war made any difference at all? Not at all. But not all London's enjoyment. These are dangerous days, wartime days, and not for an instant can the watch on London be relaxed, as, for example, the air raid warning we had a few minutes ago. And so, unobtrusively guarding the city as crowds go home, or as people sleep or night workers start their shift in armament factories, anti-aircraft guns are posted. Searchlight batteries ready in an instant to pierce the sky. Somewhere in London at this very moment, Raymond Glendenning of the BBC is stationed at an anti-aircraft gun post, and we'll hear from him now. So, okay, the next month, the hotel's shelter was occupied by people protesting um, at the Savoy, and they called the Savoy Hotel parasites, the rich people staying there. Uh, they were upset They slept because they slept soundly in reinforced basement, and uh, they had their own dance floor while the rest of London and the East End were burning. And uh, wouldn't you be protesting? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Especially, Especially after, after the raid, that, yeah. after dark. <laughs> so during the protest, an air raid started. So the assistant manager invited the protesters to stay in the shelter. A few months later, other protesters are, were angered by the hotel's continued ability to supply guests with good food disguised themselves as ladies who lunch went to the grill and ripped off their fur coats to reveal banners that read ration the rich okay so they went undercover yeah so these protesters go in and they're pretending to be fancy yeah and okay and then they're like Ta-da! oh so it's like PETA like <laughs> yeah. walk oh my god and did they get invited to stay in the shelters no, no. so they invited the other protesters yeah well because uh <laughs> Well, they kind of had to because bombs were falling right at that moment. So they were like, you guys want to stay? How kind of them. I know. But these guys, whenever these these people went, uh, I think the Blitz may have already been over at this point. But 
but rations were still happening. So they were protesting not the bomb shelter, but the rations. Oh, but still, yeah. I would also. I'm telling you, the Meatless Mondays is not a good enough ration for yeah. that No, time. you can't have seven choices of meat available for your customers when everybody else in London gets bupkis. I have a lot of questions because where are they getting this meat? Where are they getting this food, the supplies? Like, who who were they in cahoots with? I it's, think we all know the you, answer. They could to pay that. for it. Yeah. yeah, but who are you paying? Who you you pay? Who you pay? Who has supply and demand? Who has the supply? Mm. I think that's us. I don't know, Savoy. I think you could have done better. When the U.S. joins the war in December 41, business picks back up. So now we have spies, prisoners of war, journalists, diplomats, financiers, and exiled royalty, all neighbors, basically, sharing floors in the Savoy. So you really could have run into anybody at this point. Some American celebrities turned soldiers started coming to the hotel like John Wayne, Clark Gable, Groucho Marx, Frank Sinatra would show up all the time and play the piano in the cabaret to keep the staff spirits up. And Joseph Kennedy, brother of future president John F. Kennedy, stayed there on leave from his pilot duties as a guest of William Randolph Hearst. So speaking of spies, there were... Definitely friendly spies that stayed there. Don't really know if there were any not-so-friendly spies staying there. But one of these was Dusko Popov, if I'm saying that correctly, a Serbian agent whose codename was Tricycle. (laughs) So good. I want to know the story behind that. I really do, too. Uh, He was one of the inspirations for James Bond. Oh, wow. Yeah. Imagine being that. So Bond's uh, code number, you know, 007, was based on the detail that when Popov needed advice, he would call his uncle in Belgrade. And the number he needed to remember was 26-007. Oh, my God. He was the real James Bond. Yeah. He was one of the inspirations. Yeah. So a lot of foreign-born staff came under suspicion during the war, with many of them being from Italy, and they were they ended up getting taken to internment camps. The restaurant manager, Loretto Santarelli, that is a very Italian name, was supposedly the head of a fascist cell in London, according to an informer tipping off MI5, which is their CIA, right? Yeah, yeah. They have like, I think they have different branches like MI5, MI6. I'm not sure what all they do, but oh, it's their okay. CIA. Yeah. Okay. So he, wait, he was? That's crazy. No, he was not. But he wasn't? And, it, and it, somebody, like, I gave them an anonymous tip saying that he was. Oh, someone who didn't like him. Yeah. Oh. Uh, many Savoy staff and its influential, influential diners lobbied for his release. He was finally released because his mental state deteriorated so badly. Oh. <gasps> Yeah. He came back to work, but was never the same and died of a heart attack in 1944. Yeah. It like ruined his life forever. Oh my God. Who would do that to him? I think that, so it mentions in, in the secret life of the Savoy that one of the, I was one of like the restaurant managers or hotel managers 
basically was suspicious of anybody from Italy and like wouldn't believe that they weren't somehow plotting against the allies and that they were all fascist Mussolini supporters. So I think he probably called it and tipped them like off. It. That's horrible. But I'm yeah. glad everyone protested to get him. Because, released. yeah, because even after Santarelli came back to work at the Savoy, this guy was still like trying to get him fired, saying oh. that he wasn't trustworthy. Oh, my God. Imagine. Yeah. And That's the guy, horrible. he like had a nervous breakdown. He was like they would talk about how his hands would shake when he was pouring the coffee. And he just seemed like dejected and depressed all the time. Of course, wouldn't you? So how, how do they not fire that manager or <sighs> person? I'm assuming it's a manager. Yeah. <laughs> It's always a manager. It's always a manager. Yeah. That's horrible. So just awful. That brings us to the end of part two. We're going to pick up next time with what happens after the war. Thanks for listening to Hotel History. You can follow us on most social media platforms, Patreon and Substack by searching for Hotel History or Hotel History Podcast. If you like what you hear, please leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts and Spotify so we can reach more listeners. 